Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Ryan, I, I just had a very sobering thought recently as I was thinking about your graduating. Um, this is the 40th anniversary of my graduation. I can't believe it. 40 years ago, I graduated from over Wake Forest, and so I, I was. you are where I was at that stage in life. And uh, my goodness, you got a lot of uh, wonderful, exciting things ahead of you. And I I'm, just know that we, we're all praying and rooting for you. And uh, that's great. I can't believe I'm getting that old, though. <laughs> Turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Acts, where we'll pick up in chapter 9. We started a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at the life of the uh, Saul of Tarsus. You know, in the Scriptures we find some wonderful examples of some very miraculous conversions. And for that matter, every conversion, every genuine conversion of a person coming to Christ in faith and being born again and being made a follower of Christ and a child of God, it is a miracle. It's nothing less than a miracle, actually. You know, the Apostle Paul captured that idea in Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 21 and 22, and he's writing to the Christians there at uh, Colossae, and he says, And you who were alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, Yet He, Christ, has reconciled you in the body of His flesh through death that He may present you holy and blameless in His sight. Paul says you you were enemies of God. You were on God's hit list. You, You were targeted by the wrath of Almighty God. And look at you. You're children of God. Folks, that's a miracle. If you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and a child of God, a, a, a fun, fantastic, phenomenal miracle has occurred in your life. That's why we sing songs like we were singing since Jesus came into my heart. But as we consider the, the, the conversion experiences that are recounted in the Scriptures, I guess none can be described as being more spectacular than that of Saul of Tarsus that we witnessed earlier in chapter 9 as we were looking to his conversion experience on the road to Damascus on his way to, to persecute in the church to carry out his bloody vengeance towards Christians through his hatred of Jesus. And yet he encountered the living Lord and he was never the same. And we're going to pick up on that this, this morning as we continue in the book of Acts in chapter 9, you see, the Lord has confronted and He's called Paul and He's calling people today. He not only confronted Paul and called Paul through the faithful Ananias, He commissioned Paul. But I want you to see it doesn't stop there. This is just the beginning of a great work of Almighty God in the life of one great servant who was an adversary of the gospel, if you will. First of all, I want you to see that God empowers His servants. Those whom God confronts and He calls and He commissions. And that's all of us. We're all called to serve the Lord. So this applies to all of us, though we'll see it so wonderfully, dramatically displayed in the life of, the, uh, of, of Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul. God empowers His servants. He empowers His servants. You know, as we look at the scriptural text, I actually want you to back up to verse 19 because this is after Paul's conversion experience and the scales have dropped from his eyes. He can see. And and now it says in verse 19, And when he had received food, he was strengthened. 
When Saul spent some, time, some days with the disciples at Damascus, he was there with other Christians now. And in those days that he's being strengthened physically and emotionally and spiritually, they're probably helping him to sort through what the gospel is all about and Jesus' life and his ministry. And so, you know, this is something that God is doing in preparing Paul or Saul. And when we look at this, we're reminded in Saul's life of the powerful results of personally encountering a living God. It, it, it's undeniable. It, it changes one forever. Saul's conversion radically altered his purpose in life, ladies and gentlemen. By his own confession in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, if any man, speaking of himself primarily, but any, he says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're brand new. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things are coming. You're, you're not the same person. You may look the same. You may talk the same. But if a genuine conversion experience has occurred, you're not the same. You are a new creature in Christ. And this is what has transpired in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Radically has altered his purpose in life. He's gone from, from persecuting Christians to fellowshipping with them, as we saw in, in verse 19. He's, he's sitting with them. He's eating with them. He's laughing with them. He's fellowshipping. Man, talk about a change of social circles. But not only that, he's gone from despising Jesus to preaching Jesus as Christ, the Messiah. Let's look there in verse 20. Immediately. Immediately. He didn't have to go off to seminary. Bible school, but immediately he preached the Christ. And you know that's translated the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. Now he's gone from calling Jesus a heretic, a blasphemer. He's now saying this Jesus, by the way, is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. And not only that, it says in verse 20, he preached him as the Son of God, just as Jesus professed he was. And so Paul is gone from despising Jesus to preaching Christ the Son of God. You can't even, I don't think we can even grasp the significance of the radical effect that this had upon the religious community of that day, certainly upon the Jewish community and upon the newly formed Christian community. That, that God would convert someone like Saul of Tarsus. Just imagine, if you will, the, uh, the country of Iran... And, and their, their Ayatollah, uh, which is the highest ranking Islamic cleric and expert in Islamic law, imagine him suddenly showing up on CNN or Fox News or one of the international news stations. And, and now he is denouncing Allah and he is preaching Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation to the one true living God. Wow! Can you imagine how that would sit with the Muslim world? Can you imagine how that would sit with the religious world? Can you imagine how that would sit with the world? I got news for you. Better be looking over his shoulders constantly because you can bet somebody will have a jihad on him. 
So, so Saul's conversion radically altered his purpose in life. But I want you to see also that as God is empowering his servant for, for kingdom service, that Saul's conversion divinely equips him. God is doing a magnificent, spiritual, divine work in the life of Saul. He's getting him ready, if you will. God empowers his brilliant mind. And Paul was a brilliant orator. By his own testimony, Paul acknowledged the fact that he he described himself as a well-trained student in Jewish law. Under the teachings of, of, of a famous Jewish rabbi, Gamaliel, Paul was being taught. He was being groomed. He was an expert in Jewish law, the scriptures, Jewish traditions, and, and, and all of that. And now God is simply redirecting all of that. That brilliant mind that was one time an opponent of the gospel and an adversary of Christianity, now God has done a a complete 180 degree turn and all of that brilliance, all of that knowledge, that vast wealth of Jewish history and tradition, now God's using it for Him. I think I pointed it out last time in my message on Paul's conversion that all of a sudden God has to have a sense of humor because what he's done is taken Satan's secret weapon and deep and reprogrammed him. And now he's God's secret weapon for the kingdom of God. Isn't that awesome? God not only redirects Paul's brilliant mind to defend the faith, but he's also redirecting Saul's zeal. And in doing so, he's absolutely confounding his enemies. Look with me as we continue to, to read there in chapter 9 and verse 22. But Saul, well, let's drop back to verse 21. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to chief priests? Everybody was saying, they were shaking their heads, rubbing their eyes. Is, is this not the same Saul of Tarsus? What's, what's going on? It's interesting, some of the liberal scholars tried to, to rationalize the, the radical change in Paul's or Saul's life as, oh, he had a seizure. Oh, he, was, uh, he experienced some traumatic emotional event that altered his personality. Folks, come on. When God works, it's so obvious. Even the, the liberals look ridiculous trying to rationalize it. It was a work of God. In verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I'm going to tell you something. When God got a hold of Saul and empowered him by the Holy Spirit, listen, Saul was no less than Stephen. Do you remember Stephen? We talked about him earlier in chapter 6. Listen, Stephen was there and he was taking on the the Hellenistic Jews who were arguing with him. And and, and Stephen was empowered by the Spirit of God. He He was absolutely just disarming those guys. They couldn't stand up to him. They, had, they didn't have a chance in a debate. Okay, Stephen was just rattling their cages and they couldn't stand it. So what did they do? They killed him. Now here's Saul of Tarsus with that vast wealth of Jewish knowledge, tradition, laws, scriptures. He, he, he's now empowered by the same Holy Spirit that 
Stephen was empowered with, he's taken on the rabbis and the scribes in the synagogues of Damascus and they're trying to debate him and argue to humiliate him, to discount him, discredit him. And he is absolutely, the Bible says, in my translation, he confounds his enemies. You know, I was looking that up. And it's the fullness of that definition of that word to confound your enemy. It means to surprise, to confuse, to baffle, to frustrate, and destroy. That's what Saul was doing. They couldn't handle him. He was empowered with the a, with a, with a power of knowledge and oratory skills that they were no contest. Because he was... God's servant. And I stand here today to tell you that God, when He calls us as His people, and God does a calling, nobody sets out in life and all of a sudden has some kind of illumination spiritually decide that they want to go pursuing God and be saved. You're not saved. If you're saved, you're not saved because you got smart all of a sudden and decided that you needed to accept Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what the scripture says. Jesus said in John 15, 16, as Jesus talked to his disciples, Jesus said to those men, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would go forth and bear fruit. He went on in John's gospel, chapter 6 and verse 44 and said, no one, no one comes to me but that the Father draws them. Listen, if you're saved, you're genuinely a child of God, the only way that you're saved, the only way that you can claim that you are a child of God is that God chose you. And He, when He calls us, I believe with all my heart that whatever job that God has for you to do. You say, well, I can't preach like Paul or Saul. I can't get out there and debate people like Saul. I can't be a, I can't be a missionary like Saul. Well, maybe not. Newsflash, God's got a purpose for every man, woman, and child that he calls to be a part of his kingdom. And I don't know what it might be. It might be directing little preschoolers early in forming those formative years and teaching them the, the love and the nurture of the Lord. It may be being a Christian mom or dad. It may be a Christian educator. I, I don't know. It could be being a Christian business person. But I, I promise you this, that those God calls and converts and commissions to serve in His kingdom, I promise you, God will equip you. Our God is a faithful God. The God that we serve is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides just what you need at the very moment that you need it in order that you might be faithful and that you might be fruitful for His cause. He will never set you up to fail. Do you hear me, brothers and sisters? Whatever you're calling in life, whatever it is as a Christian, I promise you, God will not set you up to fail. He will provide every resource you need and He will equip you to be just as successful as Saul was. God empowers His servant, but as we go further in this passage and we examine the life of the Saul of Tarsus, we see that God enfolds His servant. You know an interesting thing? This is just the nature of Scripture. After you leave verse 22, naturally you're going to go to verse 23, right? Sequential is the way it follows. It seems like that's the next immediate thing that happens in Saul's life. That, you know, uh, after many days were passed, you know, talked about the Jews were plotting to kill. Well, if you go over to Galatians, in fact, I want you to. 
Hold your place in Acts chapter 9. I want you to flip over to, don't flip over to Pew, but flip over in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul now is writing to the church of Galatia and he's talking about when he was at Damascus. And you'll notice in verse 18 of chapter 1 of, eight of, of Galatians, Galatians 1.18, the Paul says, then after what? Three years. He was in Damascus three years. So it wasn't like he started preaching and all of a sudden they said, let's kill him. No, no, Paul is there long enough that he's established a ministry. In fact, we'll see that he has disciples in a few verses. And, and he's there in Damascus long enough that he is really becoming a serious irritation and a challenge to the Jewish community. But you know, it's interesting also over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32, Paul talks about not only were, were the, the, the Jews laying in wait to kill him, but the governor, under the king's direction, King Aretas was, was out to get him also. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 22, 23. Now after many days, three years, were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. You see, that's their response to a man of God, a woman of God. And I got news for you, folks. As you encounter the, the sinful and pagan world in which we live that, that is predominantly anti-Christ, you're not going to be on the most popular list. You're not going to be one who wins many friends and influences people. Well, you will influence people for the gospel, but you won't be the most popular person. You will find yourself under attack. They may not want to kill you outwardly, but inwardly there will be enough people that are so steeped in their sinfulness and are so manipulated by Satan and are walking in spiritual blindness that if they don't say it verbally or make a gesture outwardly in their minds, they're thinking, I wish that Christian would just die. We're not living in a world that's less hostile than it was in Saul's day, I promise you. Well, as Pastor Tim alluded to with those who are suffering persecution. But now we see, as we look at this, the persecutor of the faith has become persecuted for the faith. But this is no surprise. This is what Christ told him he was called to do. Look back earlier in chapter 9 in Acts and look at verse 16. This is God, the Lord Jesus, speaking to Ananias. He's telling Ananias what to tell Saul about the calling that God has on Saul's life. In verse 16 he says, For I will show him, Saul, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God wasn't calling Saul to a life of popularity and pleasure and comfort where he'd ride around in a limousine and have speaking engagements and sell Christian t-shirts and everybody love him and he'd have a big coliseum where thousands of people flood in and, and, and put bushels of money for his enjoyment. And No, no, no! Christ was honest. He was up front. You tell Saul, I'm calling him to a lifetime of suffering. And we see here in verse 23, the deadly conspirators immediately seek to silence Saul. But look at verse 24. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. This is the sovereign Lord protecting his faithful servant. God always provides a way, folks. 
Nobody can take your life one second before God has already appointed that you're going to leave this world and show up in His presence. Because God is sovereign. Now, Saul's adversaries headed in their mind. They had a plot already laid out. They were going to ambush him, kill him, be rid of him, like like they were Stephen. But see, God is in control. God had another plan. And that plan involved lowering Saul down in a large basket over the wall that he might escape. And that's exactly what he did there, as we see. And so what I want you to see here is the sovereign Lord... He protects, He enfolds His faithful servant. And I want you to capture that word, that verb, enfold, because it it means to to hold someone or something in your arms. Can I paint a picture? There are mother's arms, and then there are father's arms. And I really believe, consistently to every child, a mother's arms are warm and soft and comforting. And they represent nurture when you're hurting and sick. Nothing like a mother's... I, my mom's been going to be with the Lord and I've been growing up for a number of years, but you know what? I, can, I still have wonderful, heartwarming memories of times when I was sick or something and, and my mom with her arms just wrapping around me and, and I feel just the comfort it brought me. But then there are the Father's arms... And a father's strong, muscular arms to that same child will signal protection and safety. And I want you to see the blend of those two images because our Heavenly Father, when we are sick or struggling spiritually, He'll put the warm and tender, comforted arms around us and He'll help us to get through those episodes. But when we are in danger... And when we are being threatened and when it seems like life is cascading upon us, let me tell you something. We also know His strong arms. Paul knew them. Saul knew them. That's what God was doing. Putting His majestic, sovereign, strong, eternally powerful arms to enfold Paul. He was saying to the devil, He was saying to the... You can't... You can't kill him. You can persecute him. You can, you can try to hurt him. But he's mine. He's in my arms. You know, this is a theme that you find all through the Old Testament. David captured that image even in Psalm, the 23rd Psalm. And David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And David, even as a shepherd boy, as we recount in 1 Samuel 17, when he stood before that nine and a half foot tall Goliath, the the giant, and and Goliath is there, he's got a 150 pound spear in in one hand, he's heavily clad with armor, he's got a helmet on, and and here's little old David, a shepherd boy, with just a sling and a few rocks in his pouch, and it says in that scripture that David ran towards Goliath. He wasn't hiding He was running towards Goliath. And listen to what he was saying as he was running. This little shepherd boy, he says, you come against me with a dagger and a sword and a spear, but I come against you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of Israel's armies, who you have defiled. And you know the rest of the story. David knew that the arms of God for his servants are strong. They are protective. They will carry you. They will see you through. The psalmist captured in Psalm 89, he says in verse 8 in Psalm 89, O Lord of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. 
In verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high is your right hand. Oh, listen, the psalmist understood clearly that if you belong to God and he's working in your life, God is able to protect you. Saul, the apostle Paul, would later write in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's how confident Saul was in the protective, sovereign arms of God. That's how he could write in Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, to those early Christians in, in, in uh, Philippi. He says, I'm confident that that which God has begun in your life, He will complete it. Until the day of Christ Jesus. The good news for you. You're called by God. You've converted to, to be a follower of Christ and Jesus lives in your heart. And God has a purpose for your life. I've got good news for you. He will, he will empower you. He will equip you. He will protect you. He will enfold you with His mighty arms and no one will in no wise snatch you out of His arms until the day that the Lord says, come home to be with me, my child. And then we step into eternity, into glory, to abide with Him forever and forever. What an awesome God we serve. Amen? What an awesome, wonderful God we serve. I think about our newly adopted missionary Amy Bastow-Cox, who was with us last week, this young, sweet, beautiful lady, Christian lady, as she described how God is preparing her to leave the comforts of home and the familiarity of family and the security of this nation, and she's out there with some training in the International Missions Board training center outside of Richmond, Virginia. She'll be making her way to a rather harsh West African environment where she will be finding herself facing potential dangers every minute of every day. You want to know how we can pray for her in addition to God providing for her and and supplying her needs? When you pray for Sister Amy, you pray that she will sense the mighty arm of God the enfolding arms of God that even though she's on a foreign soil where Muslim and Islam dominates and where there's potential danger, she will wake up every morning feeling the arms of God around her. She'll go to bed at night, every night, knowing that the arms of God are around her. Listen, you can't pray a better prayer for her or any of our missionaries who are in harm's way than to know, to sense the arms of God protecting them no matter what. I remember vividly Brother David Triplett, Sister Pat Triplett's husband. He was one of our first charter members to make his way to heaven. God called him home. David had a great singing voice, just a melodious singing voice. We all love to hear Dave sing. One of the songs that I always yearned to hear him sing. Loved to hear him sing. And boy, could he sing it with a heart of conviction we're sheltered in the arms of God. You know, that's the promise we have. When God calls us, He empowers us and equips us, but He also enfolds us and He protects us. Well, we've got to finish up. Look at verse 26. Because Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, 
He's leaving the hostility of Damascus where people are threatening to kill him and he's headed to Jerusalem. And I'm sure in his mind he's thinking about Peter and James and John and all the other apostles. He's thinking, oh, finally I can go somewhere where there will be a wonderful, warm welcome. Not. <laughs> and look at verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the, the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So he got a rather cool reception in Jerusalem. The disciples, he busted in the door. Hey, I'm Saul. I'm here. I'm one of you. They said, whoa, get back. <laughs> Time out. You stay here. We're going to go for the exits. Talk about a cool reception. Yeah, I don't like to go into a cold church. I'm not talking about thermostat-wise. I know where nobody greets you, where nobody smiles at you, or, you know, that that is the antithesis of what Christianity is about. If any place in the world ought to be warm and welcoming, it ought to be the the, the, the church house. Amen? Well, it wasn't that way in Jerusalem, I promise you. But before we're too harsh on those disciples in Jerusalem, you've got to remember the last time they saw Saul of Tarsus, he was breathing threats to eliminate them. He was their enemy. So what's the disciple to do? Look who comes on the scene. Verse 27, but a Barnabas. You remember Barnabas? All the way back in chapter 4, we met Barnabas. You may recall where the early church was beginning and, and getting started and, and Barnabas came on the scene. In fact, let me just very quickly take you back there to verse 36 in chapter 4. It says, but, and Joseph, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. That's a good nickname to have tagged on you by the church. I'd rather have son of encouragement than crank, grump, nitpicker, tightwad. <laughs> I, look, I'm not suggesting any of those names have been used in the congregation, but I'm just saying, I'd love it when people see you walking towards the church and say, oh, son of encouragement. Barnabas lived up to his name because he was. And some of you, some of you are gifted by God to be sons and daughters of encouragement. It's God's gift working in you. You can't help it. The Spirit of God just puts you alongside of people that need encouraging. They need a kind word. They need a positive thought. That's what Barnabas was. Look in verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And so he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. You see, the difference that one person can make? So it was with Barnabas. And we'll follow, as we follow the, act of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you're going to see Barnabas, at least in the early part, he plays a very significant role in the life and ministry of one of the most important figures in the New Testament. He doesn't cease being the son of encouragement. Well, that's just God working. That's just God working through Barnabas to mediate fellowship between Saul and the disciples. And it worked for at least 15 days because things went sour there too. 
Saul is once again forced to flee due to persecution. I mean, this is just the beginning. As we go on further in the book of Acts, you're going to see this man has an ominous calling. The sufferings that he will encounter. But the fact is, God is with him, providing for him, empowering him, enfolding him. In Galatians in chapter 1, verse 18, the same verse that I took you back to to show you that he was in Damascus for three years, Paul also says that he was in Jerusalem when he finally got there to be with the disciples, the apostles. He was only there 15 days. Why? Well, look with me and see. Verse 29, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. Those are the very ones that disputed against Stephen and had him stoned. But they attempted to kill him. <laughs> so, like a broken record. We can't win, kill him. You know, that reminds me of the philosophy of Islam. If, if we can't overcome the Christians with, with love and, you know, and, 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 and works, yeah, let's just kill them. Get rid of the infidels. And that was the philosophy of the, of the Hellenist Jews that Paul was there. He was preaching Christ. He was debating Christ. He was powerful. He was effective. So they said, let's see, what are our options? A, we can tolerate. B, we'll kill him. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him home. Home was Tarsus. That's where Paul's homeland was. They said, buddy, we love you. Saul, we believe with all our hearts God's got a mighty calling on your life. He's going to do great and mighty things through you. But the Lord has impressed upon us. We need to take care of you. We need to protect you. God wants us to protect you. So we're taking you out of harm's way. Take you up here to Caesarea. Catch a boat and send you home. Let you continue to learn and grow. And Paul did. I want you to see something in that verse. Do you see how the, the believers are coming together and working together? Do, do you see even in that early church there is a network? In Damascus, the believers got together and, and, and lowered Paul over the wall. They protected him, got him on his way. Probably had an escort, take him to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, look at the network God had already put in place. He had Barnabas there. But then after Barnabas befriended him to the other disciples, they embraced him and they began to, to, to fellowship with But then when Paul was in, Saul was in danger, look how the net, look, Christians working together for the cause of Christ. And I just want to challenge us as a church to understand that's exactly how the body of Christ ought to work. But tragically, too many of God's people have their attention focused on their own selfish and self-seeking, prideful desires and ways such that we can't even see the needs of brothers and sisters around us. In a time when churches ought to be working together, pulling resources, encouraging and praying for one another. And I put the finger right on where it belongs. We pastors have allowed a spirit of jealousy and competition to break down that very network of cooperation for the cause of the kingdom of God. That must grieve the heart of Almighty God. God has called us as one body. Do you remember Romans 12, 5 where Paul says, so we are many members but one body. 
depending on each other, ultimately under the headship of Christ. Oh, that God would restore such a spirit of unity and cooperation in the body of Christ today. The world has yet to see how the kingdom of God can be catapulted forward and the name of Jesus exalted when Christians will get their selfish minds and thoughts off of themselves and off of their own little kingdoms and focus on the kingdom of God and allow that divine network of cooperation to do the work of God. Amen? That's the challenge. Wow. I hope that through the example of Saul of Tarsus, God is stirring something in your heart. If you're here today and, and you know that you don't belong to the kingdom of God, that you're not a part of God's kingdom, he, he is not your Savior, His Spirit does not live in your heart, you do not pattern your life after the principles and the teachings of His Word, and you're living daily without assurance of eternal life in heaven, I pray God will speak to your heart. I pray that He will draw you to Christ. I pray that you will experience genuinely a conversion experience. And then, He can begin the work that He would have for you to do. Now, for those of us who are Christians and have that assurance and have that calling, and live with the abiding presence of the Spirit of God in our lives every day. Listen, this ought to challenge us. How dare we grumble and complain because we have to sacrifice time and energy and resources to serve God when Paul endured what he did. And this is just the beginning. 